a joy to be with you, to be preaching this morning. You may have seen my family and I attending. We, we, we attend here often uh, because we live nearby, and it's a, it's a, it's a joy to be with you uh, in, in worshiping together. So I'm on the other side of things this morning, facing you instead of uh, looking up front, and that's, uh, but that's, that's an honor to be doing. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. You may have noticed in the liturgy and the songs that we've been focusing on themes of Christ's revelation. This marks the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is about Jesus' revealing, a manifestation of who he is. Epiphany begins with the visit of the Magi that we sang about just a few minutes ago. The revelation of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. The next Sunday of Epiphany is the Lord's baptism, where he is revealed as a son of God and the Father speaks his, uh, his words of uh, benediction. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The next Sunday is uh, the, the story of the wedding at Cana and Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine. Along the way, we have the revelation of Jesus to Simeon in the temple where he proclaims that Christ is to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. And today, we have the final revelation of Jesus, which is this, this, this event on the mountain called the Transfiguration. And it, it serves as a hinge. It's a hinge story. It hinges between Epiphany and Lent. For this story serves as a vision to sustain us as we go on our journey to the cross. So I want you to read with me from Luke chapter 9 as we read the story of the transfiguration beginning in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the two men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And here Luke points out, not knowing what he was saying. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is the gospel of our Lord. I'm sure that this past week we have been riveted to our television screens and to our devices following the latest updates and news from the invasion of Ukraine. One of the things that I have found remarkable and indeed moving is the resolve that has been exhibited 
and the Ukrainian people, these folks are not going to roll over. They are prepared to fight. There is something that is sustaining them, that is motivating them. Something that is sustaining them to engage in this, in this defense of their home. You know, we, I've seen images of school teachers and grandmothers armed with Kalashnikov rifles. Video of them learning how to shoot for the first time. Someone standing and shaking a finger at a tank. Now these, these images are striking. I read a story this morning about a woman who was doing her part by giving blood. And she said, and I imagine this in a thick Ukrainian accent, take just a little of my blood to support the bodies of my people. Take just a little of my blood to support the bodies of my people. Wow. That's resolve. That's something that will sustain them. I want to I turn from one war to another war. The 1997 novel, Cold Mountain, written by North Carolinian Charles Frazier, is set in the Civil War. And it starts in the Blue Ridge Mountains, the story of a man named Inman, who is going to enlist in the army and go and fight in the war. And before he leaves, he has an encounter with his beloved, a woman that he barely knows, but he is madly in love with. And she gives him something. She gives him a book. And it doesn't really matter what's in the book. All that matters is that she gave it to him. And so he reads this book voraciously. But also, she gave him something else. She gave him a picture, an old tintype picture to carry with him. And he tucks the picture inside the book. And really, the book serves as armor for this image that he looks at as he's away, far away from home. And that image sustains him as he, as he fights in the war. Well, eventually he is wounded, and as he convalesces, he becomes disillusioned with the war and the reasons for it, and he decides he is going to desert and go back to his home. This story is like a 19th century version of Homer's Odyssey. It's a journey. And for the rest of the story, we are on a journey with him as he journeys back home. And as he journeys to his home, he is sustained by this image this vision of his beloved that he looks at, this picture that sustains him as he is hounded and hunted by the home guard, as he dodges Yankee, rebel, uh, Yankee raiders, as he has to endure the unscrupulous behavior of people that want to take advantage of him. As he travels back to his home, this image, this vision sustains him through temptation to be unfaithful to his beloved. And indeed... The greatest danger of all, which is to despair, to give in to despair and give up on life. That vision sustained him all the way from the coast to the mountains until he was reunited with his beloved. I won't tell you how the story ends. You'll just have to read it or you can watch it. It was made into a movie in 2003 starring Jude Law and Nicole Kidman. But... That idea of a vision that sustains is what I want us to really focus on this morning. This text that we read here is enigmatic. 
I was talking about this text with students this week at where I, I'm teaching right now, Westminster Christian Academy, and I said, you guys know what this means? And they looked at me with blank faces, you know. I wonder if we also have blank faces. You know, what does this mean? I mean, we've learned, we've heard this story before. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's changed. Maybe you've been taught lessons. We've gleaned lessons from the story. Lessons. Hello? Okay. Lessons like leaders need to take a small people. Jesus took Peter, James, and John aside. And so leaders need to take a small group of people to train them. Maybe you've heard that lesson. Or Jesus went away to pray, and so we should go away to pray. We need to get away from everything and spend time in prayer. Or the fact that this glory revealed shows us the divinity of Jesus. Right? This, this demonstrates his divinity and his glory. And, and I've, those lessons are all true, and I've taught all those lessons. And in fact, Peter gleans a lesson from this. This story evidently was greatly impactful on him. He took it with him a long, long time. He wrote about it in his second letter, his second letter, which was just read a few moments ago. And he equates this, this vision, which he talks about, that, that was born to us on the holy mountain as a lesson about the veracity of Scripture. So all these lessons are good and true. But what I've always wondered is in the, in the words of the late Yosemite bear, what does it mean? What does it mean? How does this story function in Jesus' life? How does it function in salvation history? How does it function in our stories? And what we're going to see is that this story, this story functions in the life of Jesus, in the life of the apostles, and for you as a vision to sustain us. As a vision to sustain us. In order to see this, we have to have a little bit of context of where we're at in this text. We're in the, we're in the middle of chapter 9. And chapter 9 is enormous. It goes for 60-something verses. Okay, It covers a lot of material. At the beginning of chapter 9, we have Jesus sending out the apostles... We have Jesus feeding the 5,000. But the, the key events in chapter 9 are this. In verse 18, we have Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ. So in the course of one chapter, we are taking from Peter saying the most brilliant and faith-filled things, you are the Christ, to Jesus, no, you cannot die, and Jesus literally calling him Satan. To Jesus, to Peter now in this story, just saying something bumbling, like a stupid saying. Luke even says he didn't know what he was talking about. Peter is saying wonderful things, sinful things, and dumb things all the time. And that's why Peter is the apostle for us. Because we are always doing faith-filled things and sinful things and things that are just foolish. But that's the context for this. Jesus has just finished saying that he is going to die. He says in verse 21, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. And then after the transfiguration, he says it again, starting in verse 44. He says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And then at the end of chapter 9, in verse 51, we have the turning of the book of Luke where Jesus, it says in chapter, sorry, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the beginning of a journey, you see, a journey to the cross. And in the middle of this story, 
We have Moses and Elijah, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. And what are they talking about? Well, the, the translations say his departure, but the Greek is his exodus, which is going out on the road. This is, in, in other words, the beginning of a journey, an odyssey, an exodus, and that journey is toward the cross. So what is going on here? We have a moment that's like a recapitulation of Jesus' baptism. Where the, the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately Je Jesus was driven into the desert where He was tempted for 40 days. The blessing and promise of the Father was enough to sustain Jesus through that time in the desert. And here we have the same words spoken again. And it's to sustain Him on His journey to the cross. That's how this story functions liturgically as well as we are about to enter the season of Lent. We are given a vision to sustain us. As we are called, as Jesus says in verse 23, to deny ourselves daily and take up our cross and follow Him. So this is a vision to sustain us. And on the surface of it, it's to, it's to sustain Christ. Christ is going on the hardest journey of His life. At the end of that journey is the cross. Where He knows because He has just said He is going to be delivered, He is going to suffer, and He is going to die. He knows what's coming. And the words of His Heavenly Father, the comfort of His Heavenly Father, are there to sustain Him and encourage Him as He goes on that journey. But this is also there to sustain the Apostles. In fact, in Luke's telling, which is different from the others, Matthew and Mark and even Peter's retelling in 2 Peter, Luke includes a little more detail. When, when the voice speaks out of the cloud, Luke has the voice saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. That's directed at the apostles. So we see that this vision is there to sustain the apostles. This vision is there to make an impression upon them, to give them strength, to give them resolve on the hard journey that they must go. And that, the first part of that journey is definitely at the cross where Peter is tempted and in fact denies Christ three times where John sits at the feet of the cross. But after also, when these men will be persecuted, when they will suffer. In fact, James is martyred. The life that they will have to endure is there. This vision is there to continue to sustain them. And evidently, this had a great impact on Peter because he mentions it in 2 Peter that this had such an impact on him. This vision that continued to sustain him. John alludes to it over and over talking about the glory that was revealed in Jesus this is a vision to sustain the apostles, much like the vision that was revealed to Stephen as he was being stoned and he saw Jesus and it enabled him to face his martyrdom. This vision is there to sustain Peter, James, and Paul. But it is also there to sustain us. That's why this is in this story. Jesus said, don't tell anybody. We have Matthew and Mark saying that. Here we just have them saying that they didn't say anything. This, this story is put into the Gospels to sustain you and me to be a vision that will give us the resolve we need to continue on our journeys. So I want to talk about two things this morning. And if you're keeping time, that doesn't mean I'm third, a third of the way through the sermon. These are going to be brief. 
points because we've done most of the exegetical work already. All right, two points. The first is this. This is a vision of who we are. This is a vision of who we are. You see, we have this glory revealed. And, and Christ, the veil is taken off. It's almost like you're peeling back a layer. And we see Christ for who He really is. And the word glory is repeated three, four times in this text. Glory. We see Him in His glory. We are, Jesus is revealed for who He really is. Not who He will be, but who He is. But it's not, who, not just who Jesus is. We see Moses and Elijah, it says. Moses and Elijah are appearing in glory. This is their, they haven't been resurrected yet. They have not received their glorified body. This is who they are. Glorious. And, and as we are united to Christ in His glory, as we are united to Christ in His resurrection, as we are indeed images of God, we are glorious. We are are part of what's being reflected here. This is a vision of who we are. Brothers and sisters, we forget. We forget just how glorious each one of us is. We forget how glorious the person sitting in the pew next to us is. We forget how glorious even our enemies are. But this is a vision to give us a vision of who we are, who you are. In the midst of the trials of life, you're glorious. But secondly, this is not only a vision of who we are, this is a vision of where we are going. Where we are going. You see, we are on an odyssey ourselves. We are on an exodus. Jesus says, in verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is going on a journey and we are called to go on one too. We are on a journey. We are on an exodus ourselves. And in order to give us sustenance, in order to give us what we need to sustain us on that journey, we are given a vision. And that vision is of what will be and what will be. We are given a picture of heaven. It says at the end of the text here that as they were departing, they became fully awake. And as the two men were parting, Peter says, let us build tents. And as he was saying these things in verse 34, a cloud came and overshadowed them. We should not think of this as a meteorological event. This is a portal into heaven. These disciples are being transported into heaven. And they get a glimpse of what will be the glorious revealing of, of, of Elijah and of Moses and of Christ and a voice coming out of the cloud. They get a vision of where we are going. And Peter absolutely loves this moment. <laughs> and, and in fact, he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. He just says, let's build uh, tents. Build some tents so we can stay here. Peter does not want this moment to end. How many of us have been there? In beautiful moments and amazing moments and moments of, that overwhelm us, we want to stay in those moments. 
Peter wants to stay in this moment. He wants to build tents so everybody can just live here. But Jesus says no. Jesus says no. You see, the answer to our, our sadness, the answer to our pain as we go through the journey of life, the answer to the dark places is not to try to escape. There's many ways that we can escape. We can escape by trying to fast forward to the end of the journey, by engaging in, in earthly pleasures. We can try to escape by, by destroying our body, by giving in to despair itself. In other words, both of these kind of those poles, the stoicism or the epicureanism that, that are the polar temptations that draw us from God, they're, they're, they're temptations to escape the journey. We don't want to participate in the journey because the journey is hard. It's the way of the cross. And so this vision is not here for Peter to build tents and stay there. No, he has to go on the journey. But it is there to give him a vision of what is coming. And what is coming is glorious. What is coming is that we, glory will be revealed in us. This is what, how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory, the destination that we are going to is magnificent. It is amazing. And the sufferings that we endure for this present time are not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us for the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the destination. And that's what sustains us. It's a vision of where we are going. It's like if you're going on a long road trip, just imagine if you're a family and you have kids and maybe you're going to Disney World. What makes the journey worth it? And families with young children say, that journey is hard, you know, in the car. What makes it worth it? Because you know you're going to get there. You're going to see Mickey, right? It makes the journey worth it. Well, that's a crude analogy, but it is yet an analogy. We are enduring this journey and it is not worthy of comparing to the glory that we will experience. You see, as we journey through this life, as we go through the pain, the suffering, the hardship, the daily picking up of our cross, it's not guilt that will sustain us. It's not shame. It's not fear. It's hope. It's hope and glory of what we will be and where we are going. That is the vision to sustain us. You know, I've personally been going through a very dark time in my life. This, part, this past week marked a 
horrible anniversary for me. A year from when my former church pushed me out and rejected me as their pastor. And if you're a pastor and this happens to you, it's very painful. Because it not only is your, your work that you do nine to five, but it, is, it, it really digs at the essence of who you are and, and your calling. And, and, and not only that, but my relationship to God and all of those things were, were being doubted by me in the past year. And it's been one of the hardest times of my life. And over this past year, I want to confess to you, I have not gone to this vision to sustain me. At times I've given in to despair and lack of hope and wallowing in it. And so this, this morning, this is not a preacher getting up and telling you, have a vision to sustain you. Listen to Jesus. Follow him. This is a preacher confessing, I need this more than you do. And I have been invigorated by this reminder that we go on this journey not to, not to trudge through it, not to get through the slog so that we can wake up tomorrow and do it again, but because of the destination. Because of the glory that will be revealed in us. Because of where we are going. John describes this glorious destination in Revelation 21. He says, then I saw. It's a vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and, and God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away and behold he who was sitting on the throne said i am making all things new that is a vision that can sustain us friends that is a vision that can give us hope. That can truly give us a reason to continue the journey, to continue to daily take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Not, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of duty, but because of the glory that will be revealed in us and the place that we are going. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for this vision. That as Christians, we are not called simply to grin and bear it. That we are not called to trudge along in a sense of duty, but we are given 
a vision. We were given a reason to continue. And that vision is glorious. That vision is truly sustaining. And I pray that you would give us an all this morning a beautiful, glorious picture in our minds, but also deep in our souls of where, where we are going and who we are and who you are. Help us, Lord. Give us that faith. Give us that hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.